0: Welcome to Mise on Smash, the only podcast where we break the story for the Smash Brothers Cinematic Universe one game at a time. I'm your co-host, Pete Simmons-Hayes.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Simon Lewis-On.
0: Simon, are you comfy?
1: I'm comfy. This is the first episode that I am recording not sitting at a desk, the location of our... uh, Wi- Wi-Fi router changed, and I'm recording from sitting in my bed right now, so it's a, it's a little different. So I'm very comfy, Pete. Why do you Okay, ask? good.
0: Because we might be here for a while, because today we're doing a game so big that, it, that it's a meme on how big it is, and it's a meme on how long it takes to explain the story of this game.
1: Yeah, so- strap in,
0: folks, because we're talking about
1: Final Fantasy VII today. Pete. What experience do you have with Final Fantasy VII?
0: I first experienced Final Fantasy VII as a Super Smash Brothers brawl mod. Uh, it was one of the most popular brawl mod in, like, 2010 was putting Cloud Strife in the game. Mm. And at first I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, he's so... He's, like, too cool-looking. Like, he's not Mario. But, like, once I did some Googling and I understood, like, what he represented, I, I got a lot more on board, like... I feel like he was like the first prestige JRPG character that like got America excited.
1: Yeah, I mean, Uh, Final Fantasy VII was certainly the breakout JRPG in the United States um, that sort of solidified the genre as a popular genre here. I'm with you, Pete, where I, I, I was sort of not exposed to Cloud and to Final Fantasy until that character in the series was sort of becoming more represented in Smash. I actually played through Final Fantasy VII for the first time during quarantine. Um, it was one of the games that I just I bought on my Switch because they had the original version on there. Um, and I played through through the whole game uh, over the span of maybe eight months. So really that's neat game. Got, got, got pretty into it. And then in preparation for this, this episode, I've also watched Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. And there's a funny story there where I um, I accidentally bought the just the English subtitled version, the Japanese language version of the movie, and I watched that while my girlfriend Gabby was sitting on the couch, and she was like, what the hell is this? And she just ended up watching it. And then I went to work the next day, and I come home, and she's now watched the English dub and she's watched like all of the cutscenes from final fantasy seven remake. And she has a bunch of opinions on Aerith and cloud. And she says that Aerith is a pick me girl. I don't really know what that means. Uh, oh man. But she went, I, it was like, I left the house for eight hours and it was like coming home to a completely different person. But I feel like final fantasy seven sort of has that power where people get really sucked into the lore i mean you were talking about it as a meme but i mean certainly there's the um the story of the final fantasy 7 house pete i'm not sure if you know of um where it was the like creepy pasta it's, it's kind of a creepy pasta but it's a real thing that happened where it was just like this like not really a cult but it was just this group of people i think in their early to late 20s that like lived in this really shitty house and they were all obsessed with final fantasy 7 and like it was kind of it basically turned into a final fantasy seven cult is what happened. It's a really interesting story. If you've never heard about it, there's some, there's a good article about it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, but that's all to say is that this story is it's, it's, um, very naturally engaging and the characters, um, have a way of really, I think rubbing off on people. So, you know, there's a really die hard final fantasy seven fan community that made us I think Pete a little scared to tackle this, right? This game in our podcast. Um, I think
0: a lot like fi- a lot like Fire Emblem. We needed an expert in order to pitch the story correctly. You, you yeah, can't just get any Joe Schmo.
1: Yeah, I think we were worried that if we brought in someone who wasn't prepared to really do the game service, that we were going to get like angry messages from Final Fantasy VII fans that were like, treated this game like a like a joke. Um, so we we went and we found an expert.
0: Right, and I think they have their work cut out for them and they have a huge opportunity on their hands. I think this could be our Dune, where it's a mix of this high fantasy, but also it's got some prestige. It's got some really strong story Concepts. Uh, it's definitely very topical right now, uh, especially with uh, the status of capitalism in our country right now. Uh, but <laughs> a lot of video game movies, I think, execs get a little scared that the mass, like that the mass consumers aren't going to get it, and so they sim- they simplify it a little bit. And Final Fantasy 7 did for JRPGs what I'm hoping this movie could do for video game movies, where they can bring it to the West and just kind of let people understand it. Like go into that world and like challenge people and um, yeah, just like a new type of genre that we can all enjoy. Choose
2: your character!
1: So last episode, if you'll remember, we brought Pete's cousin on to pitch Minecraft. Therefore, this week, we thought it only fitting that we bring my cousin on to pitch Final Fantasy. Matthew Landini is a communications specialist at Blue Light Strategies and a lifelong video game fanatic. Matthew was instrumental in my own development as a fan of all things Nintendo, whether he was showing me the secrets of Super Mario 64 or I was stealing his Donkey Kong Country Game Boy Advance cartridge. So it seemed only fitting that, this week, Matthew lend his Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts expertise to our show. Without further ado, Matthew
2: Landini. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for inviting me and for having me on. I want to clarify a few things. I don't remember fights about you stealing Donkey Kong Country, my Game Boy Advance copy of Donkey Kong Country. The fights were that you you overrode saves oh, on that yeah, copy of right. Donkey Kong Country, and Donkey Kong Country 2, yeah. for that matter. Uh, and that's a bigger deal. In many ways, that's, that's uh, a much graver offense. Worse. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just, you need to have, you're the third <laughs> save file. You're not one or two. That's important. Another thing I will clarify is just if we get any details wrong of Final Fantasy VII, I'll provide my cell phone number at the end of this episode. You can direct all of your comments to me. Uh, I'll, I'll put that burden on my, Dangerous on my shoulders. Bargain. And I do want to say my, my expertise with Final Fantasy VII, I think I came to it, uh, just like Abby, I actually saw Final Fantasy VII Advent Children long before I I ever played uh, Final Fantasy VII. I played it on an emulator on my laptop in high school. I'm in the middle of playing Final Fantasy VII Remake. I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. It's important, I think, that and you've played it as well, Simon. I think uh, bits of it. That's an important uh, piece of medium for this story because it introduces actual plot ghosts that. that dramatically change the plot uh, for at least having not finished the game for no apparent reason that I can discern, which is great for a a screenwriting perspective, because then we can change the plot subtly and have it either be part of the multiverse or, you know, just some other sort of comic book world explanation for why plot events aren't going on in the order that they would go on in the original game because it differs so dramatically in remake. Yeah, so... Which game, which version of the game do you think your pitch is going to be borrowing more from? i say we're probably going to, the style is going to be most familiar to Remake, which aesthetically is, you know, Advent Children in a video game form. It's that sort of hyper-realized 3D anime uh, that, that really grabbed me when I first, you know, when you first play Final Fantasy VII, if you play it now, it's disappointing. The original game, you know, not from a story perspective, but just from the way it looks. Uh, some of the story points absolutely <laughs> don't hold up to a 2021. It's pretty standard. dated. It's pretty dated. Uh,
0: it's like Ocarina of yeah. Time,
2: I'd say. It's even more
1: so dated, I, I would say. Exactly. Like it's still fun. I had fun with it, um, but there are some elements to that game that like have not aged super well.
2: Yeah, and it's cartoony by limitation of the hardware, whereas like Ocarina, I would say, is you know it's it's an intentional style that they're doing. It's just they were you know they're trying their best to tell a really serious story. And it's like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I, I think of like the Metal Gear uh, franchise. It pulls so much from like '80s American action movies that it, you know, it's you know, I don't know. That's just another component to uh, what makes these so appealing to American audiences, and why uh, something like Advent Children, you know, sticks out to me still now as as a great movie. I mean, Final Fantasy VII and and six to- I mean, six was
1: really the first one to do it, but it sort of caught on with seven. Um, was sort of a departure from previous entries in the Final Fantasy series, where it was less fantasy and more science fiction,
0: cyberpunky.
1: More, yeah, cyberpunky, little steampunky. Um, and then I think that that's a big part of the series gaining such popularity in the West. I mean, Final Fantasy on the on the NES was already a pretty big RPG, but nothing compared to the way it blew up when Seven arrived
2: on the, the PlayStation. And my initial introduction, really, to Final Fantasy Seven was through Kingdom Hearts, which, right. if yeah. I can do anything through this pitch, it's linked the Smash universe to the Kingdom Hearts universe. That's the only explicit goal I have. I knew this was coming. I
1: told you folks probably a couple episodes that it was not going to be long before this cinematic universe began to cross over with other much larger cinematic universes and
2: and before that's the hottest trend in Hollywood baby
1: yeah absolutely I mean before long I mean we're really only a couple steps removed from like the Marvel cinematic universe I mean already those characters fight Ryu and Mega Man and uh, Marvel versus Capcom so I mean and the fact that Disney now is is so Marvel adjacent with uh, Kingdom Hearts I mean I don't think it's long, Pete, before our universe is closely interwoven with the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: Do you think it would be a Sony thing where we keep the rights and like, sometimes they just get to pluck our shit? Or are they just going to consume us entirely like the X-Men? It
1: sounded like Matthew had some ideas about this uh, earlier, about where our production was in terms of rights issues. Oh, I think Um,
2: you're spot on. I think especially with you know, we're, we're pitching Final Fantasy VII, but this is a Sephiroth villain origin story. So Venom was, was you know, really a big inspiration. And the same with Loki, uh, even to be even more current. You know, that is the trend that we're, we really want to chase here. Uh, and I think that we can absolutely cash in on. Oh, yeah. I mean, Sephiroth was, I mean,
1: when you look at, so Final Fantasy VII has two character rep. rep- representatives in smash brothers we got cloud and sephiroth and when you look at those two reveals i mean when cloud got revealed for smash brothers 4 that was a big deal i mean that felt like that kind of felt like the beginning of the era where it's like okay nintendo can really put any character they want in these games now cloud was like in my mind that was like the last impossible character that they made happen sephiroth despite already having Cloud in the game, felt similarly impossible. And I feel like the the reaction to Sephiroth getting in to Smash Brothers and that whole reveal trailer, I mean, in many ways, Sephiroth is the more iconic character than Cloud, I think. And and I think you saw that in the reaction um, to those characters. I mean, watching Sephiroth kill Mario in the reveal trailer, there's just so much
0: story potential there for, for a cinematic universe that has those two characters. I mean, look at the production value. Cloud didn't even get a CGI trailer. I think he just got gameplay. Sephiroth got a whole team dedicated to animating him, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal having Sephiroth. So I, I think the instinct to to have this movie really be about Sephiroth, um, I think that's that's smart from a marketing perspective. Because Cloud, I mean... Cloud's very cool, but in many ways, Cloud is, he's very similar to Link um, in that he is sort of a blank protagonist character that the player is meant to sort of imprint on. Uh, whereas Sephiroth is really truly a complex, um, almost impossible to understand character due to his complexity, um, but a lot to talk about with him. So I, I think having
2: him be center stage is uh, important you yeah, know one of the big things I, I uh, was listening to I was listening to the soundtrack of Final Fantasy 7 and by far the best piece of music from that score is the one-winged angel oh yeah mm. Sephiroth's theme is the most iconic thing to come out of, yeah. of, of the game. I, You know, it's, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, Cloud is an avatar for a player. You know, you could, from a screenwriting perspective, you could put, you could put any character and, and have him do any plot, but it's, you're right, it's it's what motivates Sephiroth that uh, is interesting. I think his motivation in here is the same. It's, you know, he's still a villain. It's an evil motivation. He wants to do bad things but he figures out a way to sort of you know transmute that same plot from final fantasy 7 of dropping meteor destroying the world for a purpose that is a collectively good thing in the smash universe
1: interesting we'll get into that in a little bit pete unless you have any final thoughts i'm ready to go ahead and break the story. break the story let's go ahead and break the story let's do it
3: break the story
2: Let's, let's talk a little bit about casting because I All think it's right. important. I think I want to put, you know, as we describe the story, I want you to be able to see some faces uh, and, and be a little more inspired as to the characters and their motivations. You know, the first person that came to mind when we we're casting the main character, we're casting Sephiroth, is Tom Hiddleston. But I think that really is motivated by watching Loki, like mm-hmm. so much last week. The other two names that came to mind were Benedict Cumberbatch. It'd be don't know good pronouncing that correctly, and Alexander Skarsgard of It Fame, oh. and the thought there is just you know, steely cool, you know, but imposing, and a little villainous, and I think yeah. the three, sort of have that, have that down pretty pat. Okay, so with if you're going with the
0: style of Advent Children, where it's like a CGI animated anime kind of vibe is it going to be only their voices or are you going to do the type of thing where it's also in their performances on how they move? Sort of like how Pixar does some things. Well, I sometimes.
1: thought it was going to be live action still. I just thought it was like the, st- the hyper-realistic style of Advent Children is what you're going for. Is this not live action?
2: Listen, if Disney picks us up, then we're going to have enough of a budget to do a full live action, you know, whatever we want. If not, we're going to do performance capture and hire a lot of really good CGI artists to make it look very pretty in the style of Advent Children. But I still think even if we were to do live action, it would be closer to the look, the aesthetic of Advent Children, the sort of hyper future. Yeah. Uh, but, still, but still grounded uh, in real life. Gotcha. Especially as we get into the, the action sequences, those are a little more cartoony, a little more Indiana Jones. Right. And that I think grounds a lot of the, the characters more. What keeps coming to mind to me is Alita: Battle
0: Angel, which borrows a lot, I think, from Final Fantasy 7, especially on like the world of it and how like the class system and all that. But also how um, I forget the main actress's name. Something I think Rose. Rose Salazar. Salazar yeah. yeah, Rosa Salazar. How she's basically half animated for all of it, but it's still clearly her. Interesting. Christoph Waltz would be good in this. Christoph Waltz
1: He'd be would be good,
2: good in, in this. Good He'd be good as President. He'd he'd be good as Sid too. Yeah. So Sid is one of the characters who currently, at the moment, like doesn't have any lines, doesn't have any moments. He's just featured at the very end in like a sort of splay of all the Final Fantasy VII party characters. Right now, J.K. Simmons would be my President Shinra, as sort of the main antagonist within the mini Final Fantasy VII world before you get to the bigger Smash universe. I like that.
1: I'm really partial towards Benedict Cumberbatch as Sephiroth for some reason. I think, I don't know, something about his facial structure is so uniquely sinister. And I think he has, because Sephiroth isn't just like, like Sephiroth is pure evil, but there's something so, I mean, his whole origin, and of course, we're going to get into this. I mean, he he was a, a hero at first. And I think he's so, he should be so uniquely charismatic on top of being just like, very sinister that I think I think Cumberpatch could pull that off
2: and yeah what's definitely great, what's great about this story is that we have Sephiroth copies we think of them as clones but they're really Sephiroth copies so whoever, right. you know we could have everyone come in and read uh, right it's, it's no problem for us to call them in and if they if they're not good enough for the lead you can play a clone we've got two great clone parts <laughs> interesting so <laughs> in your mind the clones would be played by different actors I think so. I think just to slightly differentiate them as flawed copies of Sephiroth. I think all of them, you know, you know he has, maybe one of them just has a wing that's slightly different. They all use different weapons. But yeah, slight variations, slight different battle scars, that sort of, that sort of thing. That's cool. I
1: kind of like that more than just using the same actor. It, it lends them as, I mean, they're different characters. They truly are kind of different characters then.
2: Yeah, and in the games, you know, the, the Sephiroth copies, anyone who's injected with Genova cells appears different. Right. So it's it's almost even a little, uh, it's new to have uh, basically Sephiroth B and C, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Some of them look like monks in the game, they're, they're weird. So one of the things about JRPGs that makes
0: them inaccessible to some is there's just so much reading you have to do even before you start the game. A lot of it feels like homework just to understand what's happening. How are you going to explain what's going on to everyone while keeping them entertained and just letting them jump into the story? Yeah, I fear it's gonna
2: be a lot of exposition from that that I haven't put down on paper yet. Uh, but I'll note, I'll note it when I when we're going through Act One, Act Two, and Act Three, where that exposition really needs to take place for the viewer to understand what the hell's Although, going on. Counterpoint, Counterpoint, Final Fantasy VII:
1: Advent Children offers virtually zero exposition of any kind. And look, Gabby went into that movie completely blind, <laughs> and she walked away a fan. So maybe if you, you know. Maybe the lesson here is exposition while great, you could also just toss the audience into the deep end of the pool. You know, I think we'd we'd have to play with that with um, test audiences. I think we show like, you know, here's the zero exposition cut, and then here's like the 100% exposition cut, and then try and figure out, I think in post-production, what percent exposition we actually need. Because you definitely don't need 100 but you probably shouldn't have zero.
0: Right. I feel like this is a late timeline movie in the smash like universe where we've already made so much money. We have so much brand loyalty. Well, they'll see anything we, right. we, we put out and that's when we hook them.
1: Cloud doesn't show up till Super Smash Brothers four. So it definitely, yeah. this is like a phase four or later movie, you know.
2: Also a big agree. question on the rating. You know, if we're, if we're shooting PG-13 versus R, you know, we, we're potentially going to discriminate against a bunch of kids that might want to see our movie. And that, you know, how much exposition are they willing to sit through as a younger audience versus somebody who, you know, is more our age or older who really grew up with the game and grew up... Right. In- and in- it already, right? right, yeah. All right, well, let's get into it. Act one, scene one the train yard. We open on an aerial shot of the city of Midgar, reminiscent of Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VII Remake. The camera moves in a single deliberate shot, circling the center of the city, a giant green glowing reactor core, and then spirals downward past a series of decadent offices and glass apartments with glimpses of extravagant wealth and hedonism into a decaying, oozing slum. We see logos for the energy mega-conglomerate Shinra Electric Power Company inserted into every corner of the world, video billboards, peeling stickers, distorted holograms. Finally, we pull into a brick cubby of a misty train station and reach our first hero, Cloud Strife, lingering just behind his shoulders, suggesting a player might take control of his movements at any moment. Cut to Barrett Wallace, leader of the anti-Shinra activist group Avalanche. As he grabs Cloud's shoulder, greets him, and thanks him sincerely for being prompt for the job. Barrett provides some healthy exposition. Like I said, we were going to have some exposition exposition moments. This is one of them. On the situation, underscoring our environmental narrative. Avalanche are eco-terrorists after all. Barrett's slightly condescending to Cloud, despite having hired him as added muscle, a mercenary with an infamous blade for a dangerous heist. He calls him Soldier Boy repeatedly, but explains that he picked Cloud for a special purpose, extraction, per mysterious orders from a top avalanche angel investor. In fact, the Shinra train they're targeting contains not just dangerous energy compounds, but also a high value prisoner, Aerith Gainsborough. So right off the bat, I mean, look, man.
1: You said you said that you didn't know how to write a screenplay and that you didn't know what you're doing. However, I will just say that I think your instinct here—you basically set up what Midgar is and and like sort of the class system of Midgar very visually, I think. Um, whereas, like that was going to be one of the harder things to explain with exposition in a way that was seamless. And right off the bat, I think you've done it quite nicely. Where visually we understand, like there's an upper class in Midgar and there's a lower class in Midgar. And Upstairs, then I there's
2: downstairs.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then I think the exposition that you do have, which is basically just like here's the mission. That's smart exposition. That's exp- exposition that you have to have. Um, that's you know that's like very um, by the books. Like here's what we're doing here. Like I feel like that's good. That's good exposition
2: jumping right in into a train. heist. Huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Matthew, look, I know you watch a lot of movies and a lot of shows, and I think I think you got the instinct for this already, so uh, I think we're we're in good hands. I feel we're in good hands.
2: I will say the angel cue uh, is supposed to link to the fact that Sephiroth is the angel investor who, right. who is right. trying to save Aerith, but Perhaps for his own nefarious purposes.
1: Right, we're deviating. We've deviated a little bit from the source material here. Where in in the game, of course, they're they're just going to blow some shit up. If I recall, they're not trying to rescue Aerith. He meets Cloud meets Aerith later
2: in the in the slums. Yeah, um, almost so, immediately after the train heist, he runs into Aerith in the yeah. Original game. So
1: this is, I think, this is a pretty smart and 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 Shinra is after Aerith, of course, because she's uh, an ancient, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, this is a pretty smart, um, yeah, it's a smart condensing of events, yeah.
2: Bing's, Wedge, and Jesse approach the group on three motorcycles. They begin slowly as dim beams of light from far down the train tracks and grow into a roar of popping engines and sly banter. I'm not writing the sly banter. Someone else can do punch up and they can leave. <laughs> We'll add that later. <laughs> So essentially, as soon as they meet the group, they jump into the heist. And I've said it before, the heist is inspired by Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the tank chase in that. Uh, gotcha. It's a lot of people, you know, shin guards popping out of the side of train cubbies with little flaps and fighting, having sort of moments and windows going in and out under the train and around. Uh, very comic booky, very cartoony, uh, and very fun. Does Cloud have his big sword at this point? At this point, he does, but it is not the buster sword. It is
1: just a Just a different big sword. Yeah. He's got a penchant for big ass swords. And that's
2: something that only people who would really pay attention would notice. It's a big old sword, but it is not the buster sword. Okay, gotcha. He doesn't get the buster sword in this movie, but I think oh. chronologically, we're just trying to. This is a this is a pretty early cloud. He is still okay. suffering from a lot of memory loss. He doesn't know about his connection to Sephiroth or, or sort of any of the other events that are going to unfold on Midgar quite yet. Gotcha. Okay,
0: so he's just a mercenary, just like in the original game at the beginning. Exactly. Okay,
2: gotcha. So they're successful on all accounts with the heist, having disconnected half of the train cars while the engine car charges out of the city. Barrett, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse prepare to move the stolen cargo back through the tunnels. However, it becomes obvious to Cloud they're also assembling a janky bomb with the hijacked parts. When he confronts Barrett, however, he's quickly rebuffed. Cloud soon departs to escort Aerith home. The pair leave together and she reveals her true purpose as a Cetra. An ancient avatar of the planet able to speak directly to the world's life stream. She explains she must convene with the planet after receiving a vision of Jenova, the creature at the planet's core, controlled by Shinra,
1: crying out in pain. We're okay, so we're getting into parts of this game and this story that even I, having played through the game completely, have questions about. Because, <laughs> like we said, the game is a little dated, um, and there are certain plot elements that. Are not explained very um, uh, intuitively in the game, so I do have some questions about Genova.
2: What the hell is Genova? It's I an alien, you. right? I got you. I got. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Genova is an alien. The central idea here, uh, and I think a big part of the story of Final Fantasy VII, because it really is not an, an environmental allegory in so many ways, is the life stream which is sort of the planet's essence, right? And the Shinra Energy Company is extracting Mako, this energy component, huh. which in the story and for the purposes of our, of our own story is the essence of the life stream. It's the blood of the life stream that seeps throughout the planet. Right. In our story, the hearts of the planet, if you will, manifest oh, in physical forms... Okay. So Shinra believes that Jenova, and again, this is unique to our story. This deviates just slightly, just slightly uh, from actual Final Fantasy VII lore. Jenova is the physical manifestation of the planet's life stream. That's what Shinra believes. That's what Sephiroth believes. Okay. At this point in the story, Sephiroth also knows and believes that Jenova is his mother. He doesn't know right. exactly that he was experimented on, and that he was the product of a Shinra uh, experiment where his his he was injected with cells in the fetal stage. He, he you know he's just sort of more a, a almost like a religious fundamentalist that he is born of the planet. That he is almost a Jehovah, almost a you know a, a Jesus character. Yeah, uh, gotcha. at this point, uh, okay. the connection to the Smash Universe comes because the life stream. Is the exact same thing as the force in Smash that pulls you from the from the game in between rounds. So like the light oh. that grabs you. You know, it's like the
0: body. When fall. you die? Yeah. Like when you die, that oh my god. That is the life stream.
2: And that is present oh. throughout all worlds. It's especially prominent in Final Fantasy Seven because Shinra have developed a way to drain the planet of its life stream you know they can use it to power your car to power your electricity, but it is the same energy that enables the Super Smash Brothers tournament and that binds all of these worlds together a common life stream wow. so you've literally added stakes to
0: our entire universe <laughs> theoretically yes indeed
1: okay. right thank there's, you yeah now theres there's like Basically, what that sets up is that whole universes are actually alive and
2: can therefore die, supposedly. hmm Wow. Your planet, wow. which I think, I think we do have to differentiate at some point between whether or not these are a series of many planets versus an actual multiverse, multiverse stacked, right. stacked universes on top of each other. I more envision many different planets where the life stream is more of like the Bifrost Bridge in thor where it can just grab you at any time it's sort of a supernatural force but it also is contained in a living in in sort of a just some sort of manifested way on the planet as well gotcha okay so yeah so more thor one by frost less loki multiverse yeah so you get knocked out of a round of smash the life stream is what grabs you and either sends you back or you're eliminated from the round Gotcha. Question
0: about Cloud, because we, we talked about how he is, you know, a fill-in for the player, and sometimes that, that's hard to write for. What is the vibe of Cloud at this point, besides, like, his job as a mercenary? How does he feel about everything? So I
2: think it depends a little bit on casting. And my suggestion for this was, was kind of a joke, was Timothy Chalamet. Mostly because we're looking for who is going to be the billable uh, actor or actress for the franchise. And I think he's hot. He's a hot commodity right now. Some okay. more
0: Dune stuff going
1: on right now. He's about exactly. to get even hotter with Dune. Absolutely.
2: And he plays into this sort of side of cloud that is the skinny, emo, goth cloud that you see more in Advent Children, not so much in the first game, and yeah. still sort of a confused soldier trying to rise up in the ranks. But I think I, mean, I think he's... You know, to get to, your, to get to the point of the question, he's confident and assured in his abilities as a soldier and pretty unquestioning in, I have a job to do, I've been paid to do it, and so I'm gonna execute it to the best of my abilities. He's, he's pretty by the book and, and cut at this point. I'm scared, like, making Timothy
0: blonde, would that, like, get rid of <laughs> his whole thing? Is that, like, a part of him, is, like, his, like, dark bangs?
1: Well, if we are able to do this live action,
0: how spiky is his hair going to be? Here's my pitch. I I think Timothy should be Zach. Sure. Who would you get for Cloud then? Uh, Who's the other A24 uh, boy? Um, The guy in Manchester by the Sea. Lucas Hedges.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I feel like Lucas Hedges is a little too, um, I don't know. I feel like he's not angsty enough. I feel like if anything, I feel like I get what you're saying with like blonde versus brunette. But I think, if anything, personality-wise, between those two actors, Lucas Hedges is way more Zach Fair than, and Timothy is way more Cloud Strife, I feel like. Because Zach Fair is very much like, I mean, for spoilery reasons that I'm not sure if we'll get into in in this episode, but I mean, Zach Fair is very much the idealized version of Cloud.
2: Right. Yeah, who's who Cloud wants to be. Right. Right. I all he, I want. He is really casting, wants to be Zach. Right. The casting yeah. of Zach, Cloud. That's important to me. Is I want the James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, fan art. You know, I want people to ship that relationship really hard. You're right. trying to queer Absolutely. bait. You're trying to queer bait Cloud and Zach. It's not hard to do. I don't think. And I don't <laughs> think I'm the do. first one to have done it. Yeah. I think the creators of Final Fantasy VII did it to themselves. Yeah. Uh, and that's I'm true. here for it. I, I stan it.
1: <laughs> and I'm gonna you know,
2: play part in, uh, you know, make some Rule Thirty Four for us.
1: Passing the torch to the next generation of uh, Zach Cloud shippers.
2: Yeah. So whatever that, that those the two actors out there that have that relationship that are on the younger side, put out a casting mm-hmm. role. Okay. Okay. I see that. We were talking about Shin. We were talking about Genova, right? Did I get all the points? That Genova is still an alien. It's still an alien creature. Shinra in the actual game still believes it to be like this. This, uh, you know, uh, old ancient being that is central to finding the promised land. Uh-huh. But so all of that is still basically the same at this point in the story. We'll get to it in a second. As soon as Sephiroth enter, as soon as Sephiroth and President Shinra interact, I think we have to sort of retcon a little bit of Sephiroth's past after the Nibelheim incident. But we'll get to it. Okay. Okay. Before Cloud and Aerith get much further, they hear a distant explosion and are caught in a swarm of citizens fleeing. Others running to help as the skies slowly envelop in smoke and fire. Well, I have a little note about here about another point in Final Fantasy seven that absolutely does not track then or by 2021 standards, which is the backstory about Shinra trying to cross aerith with Red 13, who is the lion. yep in the original game, Professor Hojo, who's one of the mad scientists of Shinra, is one of his he's hellbent on creating. Uh, a new version of a Cetra, an ancient being, uh, and that includes crossing a dog with, uh, with a lady. Right. I, yes. So Red We don't 13... need much more commentary on it. <laughs> it's, it's just Red a, 13 a story was... point that they included that I think we could pay homage to somehow in the film. Red Thirteen was absolutely going to be
1: something I asked the question about because he's just another character. In the, where I, as I was playing through the game, I was like, I don't understand what this thing is at all. Yeah. Other th- other than that, he was an experiment by Hojo, and Red Thirteen is yeah like a lion dog hybrid that can talk. But yeah. So 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 is the idea just that Red Red Thirteen was just the result of an experience experiment to make an ancient make etc
2: the great part is that he is not in this film at all okay so we don't, okay. have, we don't have to touch on it because okay. I, I think it's so weird to begin with that i've just i've cut it completely there hey okay was there an early draft where that was a central plot point maybe but it's not here anymore so we don't really have to go into all okay of the okay there's plenty and, of room there's plenty of, I mean, if if people really
0: want Red Thirteen later, we can always bring them back. But I agree with you. Yeah. we don't need them. It can also be a thing where, like, if they're in like Midgar, like headquarters, like they could just have them be in the background, like in, like like some sort tube. of in some sort of tank or right. something.
2: Great post-credit scene too. Yeah, big opportunity.
1: Okay, so the skies envelop in smoke and fire. What's going on in Midgar?
2: There's just been a big explosion. We don't know much more beyond that. Something's happened, and and it's affected the townspeople. Cut to two men far above, one dangling his legs nonchalantly from an industrial pipe, the other observing the scene below from a single zoom binocular, both seemingly identical but with distinctive outfits, gear, and battle scars, Sephiroth Alpha and Omega. Two of the most powerful Sephiroth copies yet still under the explicit control of Sephiroth Prime. They both go silent at the sight of a giant green explosion at the central reactor core off in the distance. That seems premature. Alpha says to Omega, honing in on the site of the explosion. He then pans back to Barrett, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse. Even at a distance, it's apparent they're similarly startled and aren't even close to operating their stolen makeshift bombs. the other replies
1: okay i so i i'm definitely picking up with the way the clones are um in in this version of the story definitely picking up advent children vibes from the way that uh i forget what their names are but the three like young sephiroths in advent children the way that they kind of interact with one another and operate in the universe
2: yeah yeah They're playful, but these will become big antagonists uh, in the second act. I would say this is the closest thing we have to OC in this pitch. Like, these are pretty much original characters that are drawn from the idea that Sephiroth has many, many clones that take different forms depending on uh, how they were created. Right. And that these two were likely, at least in my sort of, you know, I didn't outline this so much, but they're likely Shinra experiments close to when he was originally conceived. But part of the backstory that we would have to explain somehow, and I think that we we do maybe a little bit in Act Two, is that he was the first and not not the only successful, but that future experiments after. Sephiroth Prime, the first one that we're calling, you know, our main character, were not as... It's not that they weren't successful, but it's that they were unpredictable. So, so the success rate was, you know, either we have this catastrophic failure or we get another Sephiroth. And so, gotcha. they, so they, they're, they were created through slightly different methods that weren't the, you know, injecting cells, Genova cells into a fetus. And so they they are not quite as powerful as the as, as the sort of the hive mind prime. Gotcha. And gotcha. in the
1: game, you don't meet you don't meet the real Sephiroth until like the third act. You find out that the Sephiroth you've been interacting with up until that point is like one of these copies. So it's kind of like an expanded version of that idea, but turning these copies into like actual characters. It seems like.
2: Yeah, and I might have to go. I'll 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 have to go and check myself after this. But I believe, you know, the what what we would consider Sephiroth Prime, our main character in the original Final Fantasy VII, at this point is cocooned still in Mako, having yeah. been defeated by Cloud, despite Cloud having no memory of this incident at this point. Previously in the story, uh, but is still sort of controlling things and working on reunion. Uh, from a uh, vegetative state. Okay, scene two. President Shinra watches the successful heist unfold from security cameras in his swanky office suite. He has a strategic view behind an array of screens monitoring every dark angle of the city. Sephiroth Prime, in our first introduction, glides silently onto his balcony and steps into the office behind the president.
3: Good evening, Rufus. The girl was supposed to leave on that train.
2: Says the president. We
3: have the girl now.
2: Replies Sephiroth Prime.
3: We. We had her extracted, but her fate will not change. Our needs have. We both agree the girl must die. If people know of
4: her of her abilities. Going rogue, soldier? You really think she speaks to Genova? Ha! flying demon talking about a teenage prophet
2: (laughs) they'd have you strung up out this very window sephiroth says glancing to the shinra flag fluttering outside
4: they know nothing
2: resident shinra says turning in his chair as he picks up the phone
4: hojo initiate cerberus
2: as the receiver clicks in place a giant explosion rings in the distance a collection of the president's TV screens automatically switch to an urgent news bulletin. The program cuts between scenes of a catastrophic explosion at Midgar's Mako reactor core, but also live shots of Barrett, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse, presumably from President Shinra's own cameras. The collapsing network of pipes and metal plates crushes the unfortunate souls in the slums below.
3: Clever. Kill
4: thousands to hide your own incompetence. Says Sephiroth. You and your band of defects want to use the girl to commune with the planet? Be my guest. This will play 24-7 around the world for the next three months. And then whatever else Avalanche does or doesn't do, it won't matter. They're branded killers. Why think so small? You think this starts or ends with one batshit eco-terrorist street gang? They'll die in those tunnels tonight, but they're just a footnote. Fear! That's the one thing that makes us happy to be up here.
2: He gazes across a glorious metropolis high above the urban decay.
4: Fuel all their
3: desires for the brief moment the life stream affords you. You do not see beyond the clouds. There is a promised land, and that girl is the key. You don't see what's coming. And you never will.
4: You think you bleed, Mako? One-winged angel, we are Mako, we are this planet, and your fundamentalism and misplaced faith in your pickled mother blinds you to what is happening in this city, and the rest of the damn planet for that matter. This city's already infected. Drains on the system, all of them, our way of life. I'd cast a thousand into the fire to end this plague. We agree.
2: Sephiroth charges the president, and the two crash through the glass window and into the night air. (laughs) Sephiroth sends the pair hurtling towards the crumbling reactor core to hover above the ongoing eruptions. A thousand
3: starts with
2: one. And Sephiroth drops the president into a green abyss. Sephiroth and President Shunra, their motivations at this point are actually very similar, but Sephiroth is just on a much grander scale. He's still thinking that humans are the plague on the earth and that he, right. he still wants to summon Meteor to destroy Shinra and you know everyone that is attacking and feasting on his mother, on Genova. but he's not yet made that known to President Shinra or to anybody else. He's turned from soldier. He's betrayed soldier. Uh, he has his own motivation, his own purpose, but that is still a mystery to everybody else.
0: So in the original game... If we if we use Advent Children as canon, um, President Shinra doesn't actually die. He's just like presumed dead, and then he shows up. So is it going to be a similar thing here? or?
2: Listen, he just got dropped into a green abyss of life stream. He could be anybody. I, I don't he could know. Could be him. anywhere. He could be anywhere. We might see him pop up in a in another sequence uh, down the road. He, he's still our big antagonist. We, you know, we build J.K. Simmons yeah we, we gotta fill his time right all right at this point cloud and Aerith have arrived at the site of the fiery explosion which is yet to subside and has created a vast cavern that stretches into the ground and pulses with green luminescent energy as they get closer Aerith collapses and has a vision of entering the life stream through the new crater as she rouses she has a premonition about two sephiroth copies attacking them just where they stand. As Cloud resuscitates Aerith from her daze, Sephiroth Alpha and Omega strike Cloud from midair. Cloud fights Alpha while Omega restricts Aerith. An epic clash ensues, and Cloud finally gets the upper hand. But not before Prime descends, Sephiroth Prime, and impales the hero with his signature katana strike. Aerith's screams trigger a reaction from the exposed mako slash stream, and a series of cracks begin to form on glass vats of green slime all around the blast site. Barret, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesty arrive to rescue Aerith and Barrett triggers a series of larger blasts after shooting at the bats. The explosion sends Sephiroth's Prime, Alpha, and Omega into the lifestream void. As we follow them, the light becomes more and more familiar. And that is our lifestream, our super smash light that should be familiar to smash oh, so that's, gotcha. that's what we are dissolving into it's that green purple hue
1: presumably this is the point in the film where we really separate from where Sephiroth's narrative really separates from Cloud's narrative and this, this ceases to be the story of Final Fantasy 7 and this is more what was Sephiroth up to while Cloud was doing the events of Final Fantasy 7 Exactly. We got
2: through all of the Final Fantasy Seven lore that can restrict us. Now we're free to do our own thing. I just had a thought from a branding
0: standpoint. Mm. Because unless we're, you know, Star Wars, of course, starts with Episode Four, uh, But with, with these, because we already have our own series, our own universe going on, would we call this movie Final Fantasy Seven, Or would we have to rebrand it a little? Because it, it goes Re- off even from there
2: great question
0: I, do, I don't know the answer i feel like you could i mean if we took like the x-men approach we could certainly
1: call it like final fantasy origins sephiroth <laughs> <laughs> that's a little wordy i mean already i mean pete you bring up the good point where like if we did a straightforward adaptation of final fantasy 7 we probably couldn't call it final fantasy 7. we would probably just call it final fantasy
0: right Right, I think that's the cleaner approach. I don't. But, I, I'm not a big fan of colons than origins. Right, but at the same, at the same time,
1: this is not the story of this. This is not like the straightforward like story of what Cloud and his gang did during Final Fantasy VII. So we, I almost think we should call it something different than just Final Fantasy, because that way we can like, we can save the Cloud story for another movie. And we call that one Final Fantasy, you know. Here's a right. title. I'm just gonna
2: throw this out here. One winged angel.
1: Wait, that's Ooh, actually that's a really good, good title for this.
2: That's good. What? I, yeah, you I think to, that might be it. Just, that?
1: just yeah, no Final Fantasy, just one winged angel. You're right. That's the title of this movie.
2: Yeah. Thank you. All right. Act two, scene one, a game of toads. earth 42 nintendo world in a muted game of thrones wash right away we have to pause and talk about the origins and lore of nintendo world and where we are currently in the nintendo world the, the clash that's constantly happening there
0: Okay. Question before we get started. This is different from Nintendo Planet. This is Nintendo World. Same thing. No. Same We're thing. talking about Luigi. We're talking about Guigia. It's now called Luigi. <laughs> You're not as big of a fan as you thought. I guess
2: I'm. am a few episodes
1: behind. Catching up. To <laughs> no, but you 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 said you listened to you listened to uh, Gabby's episode, Luigi's Mansion, right? I am. Yeah, I'm going off of Gabby's episode. So at the end of that one, because Guiji died to protect the planet, we named the planet Guijia. Okay.
2: <laughs> all right. So I will do a Control-F for Nintendo World slash Planet and change it to Guijia. <laughs> it, it won't change our continuity at all. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. My apologies. Guijia. No. So, okay. So here's, here's my thought. Nintendo Planet at the beginning of the Luigi Mansion's pitch was a desolate wasteland. hmm hmm At some point, you know, and it continues to be this desolate wasteland, at some point, Nintendo Planet becomes populated by the worlds that are competing in the Smash tournament. Yeah. That's my thought. And that for some of them... Based on the nature of the Smash tournament, which I think we'll get into in a second, some of them have lost their worlds, their home planets, and have become refugees stuck on Nintendo World. So right, so so the
1: idea behind Nintendo Planet was and Guigia was that originally it was it served as a place where various diasporas from mm-hmm. these universes would gather after having been displaced, but their original universes still existed in some format. What you're saying is that now some of the universes are dying. Have been destroyed. Have been destroyed and uh-huh. exist no longer. And the only place for the people who used to live there is now on this planet, Gugia.
2: Yes. And in our story, that is the case for Princess Peach. Mm. Meaning... Princess Peach had her own world separate from the Mushroom Kingdom, separate from Mario and Luigi. It is Princess Peach's world. And by through some mechanism of the Smash tournament, whereby she does not win, her world was destroyed and she was left stranded on Nintendo Planet to create her own kingdom.
1: Okay, I have a Whoa. pitch. I have a pitch. Go for it. So, pre-first Smash Brothers movie there is a mushroom kingdom that is not part of the nintendo planet and then after the first smash brothers movie the nintendo planet is set up and then there is a i don't know how you would describe it but like a a part of the mushroom kingdom is now on the planet where it's like that is like where the mushroom
2: kingdom diaspora on the nintendo planet if you will is. peach has colonized a part of Nintendo world and declared authority uh, for the Mushroom Kingdom.
1: Yes, yes. Right. But to clarify, Matthew, so when you say that the, the world that Peach came from is no more, are you talking about the previous version of the Mushroom Kingdom that existed? Or are we talking about a different world that Peach maybe came from before she came to the Mushroom Kingdom?
2: So I envision every hero and villain in the smash roster having their own world that they are transported from into the smash tournament. The Nintendo oh. world is an amalgam of many different worlds that is not necessarily the host of the smash tournament but is very directly connected. Like the smash tournament doesn't take place on the planet but it takes place right above the planet's surface.
1: Okay. It's like a it's which tracks because like it's like a gas planet and therefore like most of it's like floating platforms and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Like final destination or something. Yeah. I
2: yeah. Like so that. final destination is above Nintendo Planet, and it's the final uh, stage in the Smash tournament. But you're not saying that, like, when you
1: say that every character has their own world. You don't mean that, like Ryu and Ken from Street Fighter, each have their own world. They both come from the same world.
2: Same, same universe. Okay. If, okay. The, if you are of the same property, you come from the same world. Okay. And part of our pitch is explaining having both heroes and villains be determined to be worthy through the life stream to represent the planet in in the Smash tournament. Okay. Okay. So this makes sense.
1: Okay. So this makes sense to me. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is that by the time that this movie is happening, the mushroom the pre, the mushroom kingdom world that Mario, Luigi, Peach, Daisy, all of them came from has ceased to exist. It's died. So the mush, the original mushroom kingdom world, it's dead all of the mushroom character kingdom all the mushroom kingdom characters that are left surviving they all have to live on nintendo planet now
2: they were they hopefully they were off of the planet but it was destroyed many 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 people died okay i'm with okay Okay. i get i get i get how we got here now okay this takes universal tragedy right so
0: (laughs) the (laughs) events of smash brothers Leads to the ending of the Mushroom Kingdom, theoretically, or
1: or, or, or a
0: Smash Brothers sequel, or you know, like Smash, right.
1: Smash Brothers two or three or something right, or you a know? Mario movie or it a Mario a movie. movie exactly. This takes place, I think. I mean, this takes place after Luigi's Mansion, after Super Princess Peach. This is a this is sort of a late in in our timeline. This is a later movie that you know a lot of the Mushroom Kingdom movies, you know. They've happened already, but now, at this point, Mushroom Kingdom's dead.
0: Right, okay. Okay,
1: I'm with you. Okay, so I I, I feel like I understand the rules of, of the Mario characters we're about to be.
2: Another thing I did specify in the script is that Nintendo World is Earth 42, which isn't... An- we're giving them numbers! Uh, oh my
0: god, we're marveling this now.
2: We have to, we have to. And my... My reasoning for that was because in the uh, Luigi's Mansion pitch, Nintendo World was a previous version of Earth that had experienced a world war and was decimated because of it. Is that correct? Yes, that is right. That's correct, 100%. Okay, So I think now we are fair to call Nintendo World Earth 42, but in my mind, there is another earth that is our earth that literally plays the smash tournament for entertainment that is, you know, that is synonymous with the real world. Mm -hmm. And that is a different numbered earth. That's, I mean,
1: yeah, that's exactly how Marvel works. I mean, because in Marvel, the prime, the comics prime universe is earth 616. Um, The, the, MCU is like Earth 1, 999 something but then there is an earth that is like it has a fully designated number and that's our universe where we the, all these characters just exist as comics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's a similar idea and leads to some could could lead to some interesting crossover <laughs> potentially.
2: Sephiroth awakes in a tranquil hot spring steam gently rises from the deep pools of water. Beams of sunlight pierce through the clouds to illuminate our lost protagonist. Ducks fly and quack overhead. Sephiroth reacts suddenly to a sharp jab in his foot. Two armored toads stand outside the pool, one poking Sephiroth aggressively with the sharp end of his spear while chattering to the other in gibberish, a.k.a. toadish. He protests and reaches for his katana, but finds just an empty scabbard and no blade. Instead, he grabs the end of the spear and knocks back the aggressive toad with a swift push, bouncing the blunt end of the weapon against the toad's chestplate. He lands with a thud and an adorable squeal. The other blows from a whistle on a chain around its neck, and immediately a sticky, slobbering pink rope shoots from a nearby tree and binds Sephiroth's hand to the rock wall of the hot spring. Sephiroth breaks free and pulls himself out of the bath and onto the grass. Almost immediately, another fleshy rope lashes out at him, this time restricting his feet. Then another, and another, until he's completely bound. As our hero struggles on the ground, squirming to see his attackers, he's slowly confronted by a multicolored rash, of Yoshi dinosaurs, in armor matching the two Toad guards. As Sephiroth gestates, a green Yoshi appears in blurry focus. First, he turns to deposit an egg on the ground, in the usual fashion, accompanied by a familiar sound effect. He then picks up the egg and approaches Sephiroth, as Sephiroth blinks to steady his vision. Green Yoshi raises the egg above his head and crashes it down, on top of Sephiroth, knocking him out cold.
0: Okay, wait, I have a question, because Sephiroth is a god, pretty much, like, in, in his own universe. When transported here, does he, like, lose his powers, or is it a scales thing, where, like, if a Yoshi was transported to the Final Fantasy world, Yoshi would also be a god?
2: It's a great question.
0: Wait, wait,
1: wait. Pete, You're what you're saying in your question is that because these Yoshis are capable of detaining Sephiroth with their tongues, and they must, they must be of an equal or higher power than
0: Sephiroth. That's what the scene is showing me, at least. But there's an army of them. So, like, it's like, you know, like you have to gain the power. Cloud had to gain the power of God. So, so you needed, like, <laughs> I think
2: you there, know, has to be, there has to be some measure of every potential. Smash character has to be able to go up against any other Smash character right. on, on the same Right, right, right. Yeah, we run
1: into trickiness because I feel like, like canonically, like characters like Sephiroth, like Bayonetta, like Kirby are like these ultra powerful, like god killers. And then, how do we put them on the same league as like? A duck hunt. Who's just in a duck? Yeah.
0: Could it be a thing where because Genova is now not on the same plane as them, they can't get their power, or does that not make sense because it's a Genova bloodline? What versus if is like,
1: okay, what if these fighters, when they're away from their home worlds, and they are inhabiting like Nintendo Planet, what if they are imbued with? The power of their universes, their respective universes, the life stream. Like, they're, like, when Duck Hunt is away from Duck Hunt World and he's on Nintendo Planet, he is granted some of the power of Duck Hunt Worlds, like of that life stream, and he's made more powerful. And that way, there are like real stakes. The stakes there are that when a universe dies, the characters from that universe not uh, on top of being displaced are also then their power ceiling is lower a Mm. thought but we run into problems there too because like if the mushroom kingdom universe is dead at this point then all of those characters would not be able to go up against sephiroth here right so maybe that doesn't make sense
2: i think the life stream is like the force right so it does have the power to restore worlds but it's unclear yet what the mechanism is if you win the smash tournament can you restore your home world if it's previously been destroyed by you oh. having lost the smash tournament i think absolutely yeah and that that's a big uh point of why the tournament is so important important for so many different characters
0: yeah good yeah those 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 are weighty stakes i think mortal Kombat has a really good workaround for this where they just like they say that the tournament sort of activates your powers uh and it kind of brings them up to equal footing i, I feel like there's something there like the smash brothers tournament kind of brings out the best of you and puts you on equal footing somehow Like that egg, that egg that Yoshi has, can just be as powerful as like a you know, a fucking katana from Sephiroth. I buy that. You have to, uh, to. or else we're in trouble. I mean, yeah,
1: of course, there's got to be some suspension of disbelief that happens here, right? Right, of course. Bayonetta is able to literally kill gods, but we also we also really want to see her fucking fight Fox McCloud, so it's got to be. Okay, that they're on the same power level, you know? Right.
2: When Sephiroth next regains consciousness, he's being dragged through an ornate castle hallway, decorated with flaming candelabras, plush red carpets, and ornate draperies. He is heaved through heavy wooden doors with gold inlaid peach insignias into a spacious, albeit ominous, throne room. Princess Peach sits on top of a stone throne cut with intricate lattice designs, altogether resembling a gravestone, that stretches down into dirt steps, overgrown with mushrooms of all varieties, mossy, dark, and foreboding. A line of honor guards, hammer bros, protects the path up. High maiden Daisy and court luminary Rosalina flank the princess on either side. Other court toads and toadettes cluster and whisper throughout the gallery. Couple things here. The first being that Princess Peach has turned some Hammer Bros to serve for the Mushroom Kingdom on Nintendo Planet. That's just because I don't have the characters to fill the gallery. She needs to have some sort of toadies, and they can't all be toads. Right. I wanted something a little more imposing. Well, I think there's, there's,
1: I mean, there's such interesting characterization to be happening here with Peach, because as we know from the Super Princess Peach movie, Peach kind of breaks bad a little bit at the end of that movie. She, like, straight up kills Bowser. Yep. (laughs) And so, you know, obviously there's room for Bowser to come back, but he's back he is back okay (laughs) i had a feeling he might be back um but the fact that she did that in the first place that peach just is capable of just like cold-bloodedly killing bowser and maybe taking some of his army in the process like we're definitely looking at a different kind of ruler by this point in the story than we would have been
0: back in like michael's super mario bros she definitely seems much darker, much more dangerous, like anything could happen. Uh-huh.
1: Especially now that the stakes are so much on the line, like that she's literally lost her home world. Like, and she's like, she's, I mean, I wouldn't say Peach is morally compromised, but she's certainly at a point where she'll do anything to get to, back to her home world.
2: Yeah, this is a dark iteration of Peach. I mean, and, and the world is a Game of Thrones, it's brutal. Uh, it, it's medieval, it's, it's you know, it's, it's dark, it's foreboding, it's all of those things. It's all those, those evil things. Alright, Sephiroth is presented to the princess and her court by a wizened Toadsworth. He stands accused of trespassing in the sacred spirit pools. He advises, Toadsworth advises the customary sentence of the last 200 years death by hammer. The princess, <laughs> sensing a familiar power in the prisoner, commands his release. She will determine the appropriate punishment after a private consultation in her chambers. Peach's chambers. Peach, pouring a hefty goblet of fermented peach juice.
4: You were the first to enter your planet's life stream.
3: I am the planet.
4: Oh you think you'd be taller?
3: This planet? And what would that be?
4: Earth 42. Guigia.
2: Fuck. And that's our one fuck for our (laughs) PG-13 rating. We got one in the script.
4: You can't feel the planet in pain?
3: No, not here. Nor can I feel my brothers. You're a Cetra.
4: I'm connected to this planet's live stream. Only those connected to the live stream can survive in the tournament, heroes and villains.
2: Here is the explanation of the Smash Tournament, and that's probably the biggest lore that we can bring to this episode.
0: My question here is, uh, I guess, I guess there can be an explanation, but like, if if this is like after multiple Smash Brothers movies, presumably, like would it be like an off-screen explanation or would it be like – because would we know the rules, I'm guessing? Or is this the first time there's an actual Smash Brothers tournament and everything oh, else? Oh, yeah, we
1: might know the rules already. In the... Yeah,
0: so that's totally, my question.
2: Totally depends on the timeline, I think.
0: Mm, okay, that's something we can leap into can with continuity approaching. With yeah.
2: yeah. Fortunately, yeah. I don't think the exposition changes the uh, end result of the scene – which right. is b- very intentional. And, and and for the record, we haven't actually explained
1: it in the context of this show yet. So I think the idea that you're saying is basically that, you know, that, that Smash Brothers in these movies is going to operate in a very similar way to the games where like these characters are fighting for supremacy of their world, basically. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, that hasn't really been established yet in our show that a a literal Smash Brothers tournament takes place.
2: And it is unclear who controls the tournament. Oh. Mm -hmm. So I think we could have some, you know, hints that there is, you know, people from our Earth who maybe even are participating in the tournament. that that it's this form of playable entertainment for us somehow. But that really there is a... We're
1: potentially looking at like a, uh, at a like sausage party moment where at the end of the movie, these characters realize like, oh fuck, we're a video game.
2: Here... Sephiroth Prime realizes his mission to break the cycle and summon Meteor as a final smash in the next tournament, destroying the world. He explains his connection to Genova, his family, and his intention to end the tournament that feasts on his mother for sport. Peach agrees, believing that the performance of a planet's hero Determines the health of that planet's life stream. Her own world was destroyed a long time ago, and now she takes refuge on Nintendo World amidst constantly shifting refugee tribes and a dubious alliance of kingdoms. They form a mutual trust and respect. Peach reveals that with the help of her court maidens, she can summon a temporary life stream portal to return Sephiroth to his home world. There he can prepare for the next tournament and train to represent his planet. They agree to reunite at the tournament along with Peach's network of like-minded allies to create a mega team, pool their smash balls and unleash a collective final smash that rips the tournament world and grounds apart. Severing the connection to the life stream and freeing the worlds held hostage. Whoa.
0: Whoa.
2: Interesting. The, the, the idea of the
0: Smash tournament being cyclical in nature is intriguing, um, only because it seems like the alliances are very malleable um, where they could be. A tenuous alliance between Peach and Sephiroth here. Uh, yes.
2: Just like the Olympics. Smash tournament is, is periodical. It's not every year. <laughs> Alright, should I read the brackets after this paragraph? Please, please. <laughs> Alright, we...
1: <laughs> I just
2: read that! I knew that's where this was going! I knew this is where this is going! Intense love scene. With oil and abs. This is all for the mothers willing to go to the theater, by the way. Mmm... <laughs> Especially as, you know, I was writing this, thinking about this at least during the coronavirus a little bit. If you're willing to go to a theater, even in this day and age, you're making a bit of a sacrifice. Good for you. I'm going to reward the parents, the hard mothers that are taking their kids to this. I want like a Jason Isaacs, Captain Hook. This, know, sex scene, song.
1: this sex scene is really all about Sephiroth more
2: than it is about peach yeah oh no peach is a footnote yeah (laughs) hard this is about the six-pack getting oiled up this i I mean we we could have like a quentin tarantino feet mush uh at some point but no this is the the primary focus is Sephiroth. totally gotcha okay so this
0: is like the scene where like kids that see this 20 years later are going to tweet about it and be like guys Did your sexual awakening happening with this? Did your did you start having thoughts after this scene? Like this is the one people remember and they start thinking
2: about. This is my Nala the tiger. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not reading too deep into my own, uh, but yeah, no, no, no. This this should awaken some things.
1: Presumably, Peach and Mario, their relationship is is no more by this point. Solid as ever. Solid as ever.
0: Oh no! Oh <laughs> no! On Mario. Ah, buddy. He's <laughs> just quickly becoming one of the most complicated characters we have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't blame her. I mean, I think some of the characterization of Mario in previous pitches has painted Mario as not a not a great guy. You know, um, at least well, I'm thinking of Nathaniel's Donkey Kong pitch, which paints Mario as just an absolute monster, but the canon of that ended up being that that is just the version of Mario that exists in donkey Kong's mind. Yeah. The mind of
0: Kong theory, the mind of Kong
1: theory. We can't uh, hold that against him. Yeah. But Mario is still like a little sleazy. I feel like.
0: I think he just has a lot of problems. He's still stuck in the past a little. Uh, He's a very angry man.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's true. So I mean, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold it against Peach. I mean, things happen. Things happen right. when Sephiroth shows up in your dimension, all shirtless. I mean, we've all seen Sephiroth's eight pack. He's hot. It'd be hard it'd be hard to deny that.
2: And this is a Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, eight-pack. And it's
1: Benedict Cumberbatch exactly, exactly.
2: You CGI on those extra two packs at the bottom. In the distance, war horns cry. As the sun sets, a clattering of war machines and columns of growling goombas approach the castle, forming a line several rows deep. Bowser sits on top of an enormous battering ram, a tower bursting with troops adorned by a swinging iron appendage cast to look like a dragon, set ablaze inside and shooting ribbons of flame out of its nostrils. So this is a big siege sequence. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's at, uh, at dusk, sun is going down, very ominous,
1: uh, calm before the storm. And Bowser's back to life. We'll have to figure out some way to bring Bowser back to life because Bowser dies in Super Princess Peach. But we, we already talked about this in the Super Princess Peach episode about how that is not a problem at all. Bowser is dying and coming back to life
2: all the time. Every game. Every game, so. And in we'll... this sequence, we do have another reanimated character in a sense, so we could reanimate Bowser with some sort of magic as well. Oh, because we're about to meet
1: President Shinra again. Gotcha.
0: Where is
2: Mario in all this? This requires a little thought. So my, in my head, Mario and Luigi are still plumbers, even in this sort of more medieval Game of Thrones universe. Right, they still, so got, still, they still have to have a job. And they're on the job. Uh, and I think in, in this world, that would be like some sort of aqueduct or just some sort of, you know, more primitive piping system that they'd be working on. So we could have a whole sequence of them going about their day, working on different pipes, and then, you know, getting that, that sound, that alarm, that there's a call to action.
1: <laughs> Makes it so Aww. sad if, like, Peach is cheating on Mario <laughs> while, like, Mario's, like, hard at work, like on like unplugging <laughs> someone's toilet in Delfino Plaza.
0: He like kisses her goodbye in the morning, like, you know, gets his coffee. And it's, what if it's like a really hard day
2: on the job too, you know,
0: like he really needs her at the end of the day. Oh man, brutal.
2: Yeah, there's a whole incel cup current running through the whole <laughs> universe. I don't know what's going on. <laughs>
1: Maybe Mario's into it.
0: Yeah, maybe he's a cuck. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Peach cheated on Mario with Sephiroth. I think Peach knew that Mario was going to be really into this. She found, like, she found the one guy in the multiverse more evil than Bowser. And she's like, Mario's going to be fucking thrilled. Yeah, more (laughs) evil and more hot.
2: True.
1: So, okay, so they're off
2: go. plumbing. They're off plumbing. Yeah, so we have this insert another big battle sequence here. Fill in the details later. But we have this reanimated Bowser, I, I sort of think with like magic purple flame or something, something intimidating.
1: Fury Bowser from Fury Bowser's Bowser. Fury. That'd be cool. We could Perfect. we could take visual elements from that.
2: So Bowser, flanked by President Shinra, Injured, but in command, maybe he's, you know, he's in a wheelchair or something, you know, was not unharmed during his uh, journey through the Lifestream. They attack the castle on top of this sort of mega tower that's flanked by many other smaller towers, to be rebuffed by Mario and Luigi, who have come in after uh, uh, putting in already a solid nine to five to rescue Princess Peach in the castle. Troop towers roll towards the castle, ladders eventually fly over the walls, Toads begin pouring hot oil in giant buckets to cook the goombas clustered by the gates. The saute elicits a pleasant smell, but the screams are horrible. (laughs) Sephiroth and Peach watch the battle unfold from the top of the castle, surrounded by the princess's top military advisors. They're confident and Sephiroth seems steely calm, as always, until he watches a one winged copy of himself descend from a spot in the sun to wrestle Luigi into the air and drop him from an impossible height. Peach explains Sephiroth must return to his home world immediately to prepare and to escape the madness of a warring Nintendo world. Did did Luigi just die? I don't think Luigi's dead. I think okay. we can have a Mario Rescues Luigi moment. <laughs> but it, <laughs> but it perhaps to, to the average audience member, it might appear that way for a second. It might appear, and he's definitely the target of the attack. They go out of their way to to take down Luigi. Damn.
4: Bowser believes only the strongest reach the end of the tournament.
2: Peach says.
4: I don't think he'll reach my rose garden.
2: (laughs) He's not your biggest problem here. We are. Sephiroth erupts into the sky to confront Alpha and Omega, who are slowly overtaking Mario and Luigi. Sephiroth Prime could not sense their presence and thought them both lost in the livestream. During their conflict and their clash in the air, Alpha explains the livestream deemed them unworthy during their trip through space and time. The unexpected journey severed their connections to the planet and the livestream. After being recruited by Bowser, their only goal is to eliminate the weak from Nintendo World and regain access to the livestream via the Smash tournament.
0: So these Sephiroths willingly go under Bowser's rule. That's
2: wow. why it's
1: not Sephiroth Prime, because Sephiroth Prime would never do that.
2: No, and they They're buy into this hierarchy that uh, that's that's causing these these feuding tribal clashes. Wow,
0: that's very impressive for Bowser. I gotta give like I, I didn't think he'd have that sort of
2: uh, persuasiveness, Leadership, that, that instinct. Get, I hope he gets a, a Sephiroth the wig out of it. If you're a copy too, you want to be able, you want to take down the original. I mean, that's every movie, that's every comic book. They're going to turn on you at some point. So there you go. As the chosen warrior, Sephiroth Prime, therefore, is their mortal enemy. They clash, and Mario and Luigi give occasional support. So President Shinra is killed because we need to have some sort of emotional moment, even if, you know, he's he's a villain, but it's still J.K. Simmons, so it's going to be an impactful moment on screen. He's killed when Bowser's tower explodes from a flaming ballistic chunk of obsidian that's launched by trebuchet and enchanted by Lucinda to burn with bright blue flame. After sending another round of fiery volleys, Peach orders Lucinda and Daisy to prepare the portal at the Temple Mount. Wait, who's Lucinda?
1: Is that Rosalinda? Oh, Ro- yeah, Rosalina. All right, I was I was writing. This, I was writing this
0: <laughs> Rosalinda. <laughs>
1: late at night, it's Rosalina. It's Rosalina. Okay, so that's Rosalina.
2: Rosalina. Okay, so she's part of this. She's part of the she Daisy, Rosalina, are the court mages. I see. Gotcha. Okay, okay. Uh, and the Temple Mount in my mind, I sort I started I wanted like a an Indiana Jones Temple of Doom moment, but outside. Gotcha. And that sort of shifted, I think, a little bit more into picturing like an Acropolis sort of on the temple level, you know, like at the very top, but having like a lot of steps that lead up to it. So changing styles maybe to look a little more Greek, a little more Roman. In this, You definitely uh,
1: see structures like that in various like Mario Kart levels, I feel like mm-hmm. that we could pull inspiration from.
0: Yeah, Peach's Castle I think varies depending from game to game on like what style she feels Uh, I I, I like to think she changes with the times, so I think we, we can have some liberty here.
2: The battle in the skies of the castle moves over to the crumbling stone temple. The three mages begin their enchantment. Ancient blue and green runes project from the floor of the temple, condensing gradually at the center into a humming mass. A column of light starts to slowly flicker into existence, projecting a portal back to Gaia. But the mages need more time to power the incantation. The two Sephiroths continue their battle as Peach cries out for Sephiroth to return home through the portal. Here's where I need a little help uh, fleshing out some details. Okay. So I think the idea is we need to have an evil Sephiroth left in every world. So we need to have Alpha stay in Nintendo World, and we need to have Omega go back. To the Final Fantasy VII worlds so that they can serve as like their respective antagonists, okay. While mm-hmm. our main Sephiroth is off, sort of being more of a hero, doing more of a hero's journey arc. Okay. Mm,
1: so we have this portal back to Gaia, which is the Final Fantasy VII world, open, and we have uh, Alpha and Omega fighting Prime.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it could
1: be as, as simple as in this battle, like either like either Alpha or Omega gets like just completely wrecked by Sephiroth Prime, like goes like toe to toe with him and gets just completely destroyed and goes, is unconscious in in Nintendo World. And so he's the one who stays behind. And then let's just say that's Omega that that happens to. And then Alpha, seeing that uh, Omega, like did not stand a chance going up against Sephiroth Prime, decides not to fight Sephiroth Prime and instead he takes the portal back to Gaia, leaving, and then the portal like closes right behind him so that Sephiroth Prime can't chase after him.
2: So I, I like the the brackets I have here are sort of very close to that. Oh. Um, it's both Prime and Alpha strike each other, uh, but I think it should be all three of them having a fight where they basically move in parallel the entire time because they're clones. And then in some sort of final strike from... An outside character that that jumps in at the end. My thought was like a second boss variant of President Shinra comes back because that's such a classic Final Fantasy trope is to have two versions of the boss. So he becomes like, right. Um,
0: It could also be an interesting character moment if, like, it seems like these two Separats have a little bit more pull here than they do, like, in the original world. It might be interesting if, like, maybe um, Rosalina has this portal that is, like, sucking people back in. And, like, what if it's a thing where Omega or Alpha maybe, like, pushes the other or, or like, like kind of manipulates them into going being sucked back into that portal so it's, like, this is my domain now. I don't need another one of you. This is my place.
2: I um, like that because it would make sense that even the clones would also turn on each other.
0: Right, because they all have the ego. I don't think they all like each other. I think it's just kind of get to the top but either way one is here
2: one is in the other world and then and any then of those Prime's ideas that work his own thing yeah yeah so in some sort of final strike sephiroth prime and one of the clones go hurtling through the portal just before the court maidens mages break their enchantment so he- Here's the big twist. Within the vision of the live stream, within the journey, we see a vision of Samus, everyone's favorite space pirate, ejecting an escape capsule from a spaceship that's under laser fire. And we see in this moment that Genova is originally a Metroid. Oh shit. I want the
1: record also to show Samus. Not a space pirate. She fights the space pirates. She's about it. Fair enough. <laughs> Honest mistake. Honest mistake. <laughs> so Genova is Genova like Is, is visually Genova like a, just a regular Metroid, or is she like a Metroid queen or something?
2: Yeah. Like is she like Mother Brain? Just at okay. least the head has to be the distinctive Metroid shape, but I think you can branch out and make it sort of a more human-like figure.
1: Right. I mean, she could be. I mean, that could be some variation variation of like Metroid Prime, who is, of course, Dark Samus. I like Metroid the-
0: Prime because Genova already kind of has that feminine form, and that we that we haven't really seen um, because Dark Samus always has the suit on. We really don't know if there's like a Zero Suit version of that. Right. Uh, we could go the route that Genova is what a Zero Suit Dark Samus looks like. And then that that adds a little more relationships going forward in like the Smash universe. So like, does Sephiroth see Dark Samus' mom? Does he follow, follow her around and call her mom? Like, what's that like? So the implications
1: for this for people unfamiliar with the Metroid series is that Metroids are basically alien creatures that are energy vampires. Essentially, they. Have the ability to like suck the energy out of living organisms. So the fact that like a powerful Metroid, like this version of Genova, is basically attached to um, an entire planet and a source of life stream in a multiverse where, or in a universe where where planets' energy and their life stream is very important, that has major implications. That 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 I think there's a a a being out there that is capable of harnessing that power
0: and stealing it.
1: It's a yeah.
2: good
0: big baddie to have down the road. Yeah, it reminds me of uh who's that Fantastic Four villain that has a Galactus? similar thing going? Yeah, Galactus, the planet eater or yeah. destroyer.
2: Very galactic, if Galactus were sexy. Unicron, sexy Galactus. Unicron yeah. from my favorite movie, the Transformers animated movie is a planet that eats other planets oh there's something Uh so okay so jenova is a metroid and then we're back into act three in sincerity
1: okay so 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 this this is really like a this is Samus showing up and this being a revelation is really like it's an easter egg kind of set up for future stuff rather than it is like an integral part of this story Exactly. I think
2: it's a vision that maybe Sephiroth has while he's traveling through the livestream of the origins of his family, you know, quote-unquote. Gotcha. He's his mother, he's Metroid. So we return to more of a Mad Max vision of Midgar. Shinra has gone into disarray following the disappearance of the president, and Midgar has fallen into chaos with marauding ex-Shinra gangs and a mysterious resistance faction. The remaining members of Avalanche have reformed in a ramshackle seventh heaven bar, the original being destroyed in the slum Mako catastrophe. They are now in the deserts on the outskirts of the city. The Lifestream deposits Sephiroth Prime on a dune near their camp. His wounds have healed during the journey, but he sways wearily as he crosses the uneven sand. He collapses, but not before scouts from the village spot him in the distance. His vision fades, and he sees torches and hears distorted calls to attention. We see another vision, this time of a spring, an oasis in a canyon in the desert seas just beyond Midgard. A baby with blonde hair emerges from a pool of water, stretches, yawns, and cries. Sephiroth wakes to the entire Final Fantasy VII gang surrounding him in a medical tent. Next to his bed, Cloud lays on an operating table, with tubes and wires hanging all over his body, Aerith prays fervently in a chair near Cloud. Aerith and Sephiroth share a psychic moment initiated by the life stream, and that's a moment to realize that he's not an antagonist for the party.
1: Right. It's it kind of looks like like I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it kind of looks like Sephiroth might be joining Cloud's party here.
2: Yeah, Mm. but they they are naturally, you know, a little mistrustful because the last time they saw him, he impaled Cloud from, like, 90 feet above with his Right, right. This feels like a
0: studio note, how Loki was so popular as a character, they made him kind of good. And maybe just like Benedict Cumberbatch, they wanted him around a little longer, so it's like, let's make him good. Uh, (laughs) He's too charismatic to be evil.
2: One of the big things too is at some point he loses his sword, and we have to give him his sword back for some of these battles. And it, we, we could go back and talk about maybe Peach at some point presents it to him as if it was separated during his first journey. I also had a thought that the number of times you pass through the live stream should have some effect on you. Yeah. So my thought was he's running two stock in this movie. So anytime he goes through the live stream, he loses one of his lives. (laughs) Gotcha. And that would just be like a little Easter egg. Like you only, like characters only really have two stock in some of the movies. You can only pass
1: through the live stream so many times before it'll kill you.
0: That's Mm. an interesting rule. Uh, I think something we're going to have to talk about in continuity approaching is you're approaching the Smash Brothers part universe a lot more like the game than i think everyone has previously and and those are some rules we'd have to really think about uh this vision of it lends itself to
1: a much more um literal adaptation of super smash brothers with the way the live stream works with the way i mean i love the the tournament smash world as sort of a world of like floating platforms yeah
2: we're just trying to do tie-in marketing we got more games to sell so we can get you know, kids hype to it in the theaters. Exactly, gonna- exactly. oh, oh, yeah.
0: After watching Space Jam, I think we can do this as shamelessly as possible. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> the party accuses Sephiroth of being a murderer, and in a brief scuffle, the tent is blown away, and Sephiroth ascends with two wings. Oh, shit. This is his Gandalf the White moment. Oh, shit. In some process through traveling through the life stream, Gaia has restored him as a... Uh, A a true angel. And in brackets, I say future DLC. Because you could have a a costume for 15 bucks, and people would would definitely...
1: (laughs) So this is is the first time, I think the first time in in our show, uh, Pete, where we've had something pitched on the show that is now affecting the games that Nintendo
0: makes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That's kind of fun. Like, what if there's a Smash Brothers tie-in with the Smash Brothers movie? Um, Right. They
1: do like a video game based on Nathaniel's Donkey Kong movie. They do.
2: It's
0: just eating. It's just eating its own tail. Like (laughs) that's crazy.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Sephiroth does not defend his actions, but he proclaims he can save those who are willing to fight for the planet. And with this, he embraces Cloud and Aerith in each hand and flies them to the Oasis Pool. You're not yet powerful
3: enough for what's to come to this world. Train. Continue
2: down the path.
3: And look for me at the end of your journey.
2: Sephiroth dips Cloud into the pool, and he disappears into white light. Aerith steps into the pool and slowly dissolves into green light as she descends. We hear a small chime, a Mickey Mouse chuckle, and we've created our connection to the kingdom Hearts universe. The sun sets as Sephiroth unfolds his matching wings, flaps once, and lifts off like a rocket into the orange sky, piercing a cloud in its center and speeding into the atmosphere with a slight smile.
1: So Aerith disappearing into the green light, is that this movie's version of in the game when Sephiroth kills Aerith? Is she dying there? Or is she going to Kingdom Hearts world? She's
2: going to the Kingdom Hearts world. Yes. So in Kingdom Hearts, Sephiroth is like the boss at the end of bosses. You finish the game, he is always the hardest character. He is who you have to level up for uh, in all the games. And so they're per- so the-, the idea is just to have the three of them, Aerith, Cloud, and Sephiroth get in somehow to the Kingdom Hearts universe and train more for Smash. So so in your mind, the next
1: movie that features Sephiroth Cloud and those characters is basically going to be Kingdom Hearts. Like, we're... It would
2: also feature Sora, Goofy, and Donald Duck.
1: We're crossing over with Kingdom
0: Hearts next. Uh... So now we need to make a deal with Disney. Their lawyers
2: are sharks, Matthew. They're sharks. You have it's less than fifteen seconds of the Mickey Mouse, you know, laugh or something. Just whatever it is, that subtle thing. I don't think you have to. That pay costs six million
0: dollars. <laughs> that laugh costs six million dollars, Matthew.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna argue fair use in court. I don't. I don't know how well it'll work. <laughs> oh Damn. man,
1: that's exciting. I was one I mean, Pete, we've talked about this whether or not we can get away on this show with doing a Kingdom Hearts episode, given that Cloud and Sephiroth are both in Kingdom Hearts, even though Sora isn't represented and Kingdom Hearts isn't technically represented in Smash. I think we can get away with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think that right now we can get away with the Mickey Mouse laugh and now we just have to wait and see if Sora is announced as the last character. I, I think just, even
1: if he's not I think we can I think we can do a Kingdom Hearts movie in our universe as long as like Cloud and Sephiroth play a prominent role alongside Sora
0: yeah okay I'm down because it's like now we're at the point where it's not even like a game ad- adaptation anymore it's sort of what Marvel does where like it takes like a popular story and it's like all right our universe is already so complex we're just gonna mix it with right. our cinematic universe a little I, so I mean i know here.
1: eventually down the line we're gonna be crossing over with the mcu with marvel versus capcom i know that's gonna happen at some point
0: so just wait <laughs> disney oh, disney that's buckle up a, we're coming for you that's gonna give me a fucking headache i don't want fucking <laughs> rocket raccoon to be like i want the bigger gun to pikachu like <laughs> gonna be
2: ow Okay. I want to do the, the novel adaptations of all the movies because that's where you really get to write down and explain all the lore in detail. Oh, man.
1: That, whoever gets saddled with that just, like, has their work cut out for them. Yeah, they're
2: going to have the full crazy board at home with strings and papers yeah. connected all it looks yeah. like. Yeah. Conspiracy. yeah, doing the Charlie Day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was no a little bit pitch. of
2: me trying to prepare this pitch just to get all the Final Fantasy facts straight. There's,
1: like, so much good fan service in here. I think <laughs> having having Mar- the Mario uh, universe play a prominent role, like the Metroid cameo, of course, the Kingdom Hearts stuff, like, there's so many moments, I think, where if you have fans watching this movie in a theater where people are going to lose their fucking minds, the right? Sephiroth, the, the Sephiroth
0: Peach fans. moment is going to have memes for years. People <laughs> are going to be talking about that for years. So... Let's jump into continuity
1: approaching here. We talked about this earlier, but this is a, I mean, we are now getting into sort of more literal rules of Super Smash Brothers and how that, what those crossovers are going to look like and, and how it's going to work. And that at some point, I mean, maybe, you know, we can do a Super Smash Brothers movie where it's not a tournament yet even, but eventually there's going to be a literal tournament And we're gonna have, we already have floating platforms. And there's, we have now set up via the live stream of how multiple lives work and all that. And there there are stakes to it now and where you have universes that are dying and even characters that could die with, you you know, you can't pass through the live stream so many times so we can like, we're, we're gonna be potentially killing off major characters.
2: We have Um, some alliances forming at the tournament already. We know there's going to be some sort of scuffle that tries to end the whole thing. We're not sure exactly all the players that are going to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: I think the rule
2: setting could be simple,
0: at least because we have Master Hand already planted as kind of the game master of this entire thing.
1: Master Hand and Crazy Hand, they'll definitely play, I think, a prominent role, role chronologically in terms of like being the first ones to like set up what these rules are. Um, I definitely think we'll be able to use them. One thing you did mention, Matthew, earlier is that there is a universe where people are actually playing these games, our universe. And there was a slight implication there that Master Hand and Crazy Hand might be of that universe, literally playing it. Now, in our in our universe, we had Master Hand first being summoned by Ness. What if Ness is like, I don't know, he like tore open the multiverse and like he's brought in like these players' hands into the world or something. Pete, you looked like you had a
0: revelation. I have a revelation. So we were having a really hard time trying to find, trying to crack, cause Earthbound has that one thing where they kind of, you are a character, they address you like the player. Mm-hmm. So like you're saying, if there's someone like playing Earthbound in like a real universe, could it be them that like becomes Master Hand somehow? Master and that's who gets summoned. And it's like, he wants to go on
1: another adventure and he's literally like,
0: it's that's some kid. how
1: Master Hand and Crazy Hand
0: are getting summoned. Right, and here's my other pitch. All right, this is nuts. Uh, maybe, so we already have a movie pitched where one of the game, one of our the games that is being adapted is literally a game in that universe, and that is Minecraft, where it is literally a kid going into the game of Minecraft, and right. figuring it out, and like, and that character is this lonely kid. That doesn't have any friends. Like, what if that Minecraft universe... That Minecraft game is in the Earth universe we're talking about. Right. And maybe that kid is Master Hand. Well, that kid is
1: Steve. So, that would make Steve Master Hand. Right. <laughs> Whoa. Isn't that kid from, like, the 2040s, though? Isn't he from the future? Right.
0: So, I guess that
1: He's, didn't... like, from an era, like, I think... The way Ben's pitched that was like, he's from like the 2040s, a time where like no one plays video games anymore. Like, video games <laughs> were like a cultural blip. No one plays right and he discovered exactly. like this old game, Minecraft, right?
0: So, when so, when like something like that happens in a game where they like ask a player to do something, he takes it way more seriously than like a regular gamer would because he's never been asked that before. It's like a
1: I mean, that would basically make Steve Minecraft Steve and the same person as Master Hand and basically he's like a king the Conqueror thing where he's like coming from the future and like and like r- messing shit up in the past
0: right that's just one pitch it doesn't have to be Steve I think it should st- I think it should be in the same universe as that Steve though I see oh, it's, it's, oh not necessarily Steve but doesn't have universe. to be Steve but,
2: does but the kid know that he's Master Hand or does he think he's still playing a game that's a great question that's a good question We'd have to
1: really break into that in the, the Super Smash Brothers episode, I think.
2: Like, it like, doesn't have to away. be, Steve. At, like, at the yeah. end of the Lego movie, where he's just playing Legos. Right. <laughs> no idea. He doesn't realize... Yeah, he, he is, like, he does not realize that the
1: fates of multiple universes rest in his hands.
0: Right. And if he's Master Hand, who's Crazy Hand? Reggie Philamy. <laughs> he's old... His older brother that, like, fucking knocks shit over.
1: (laughs) Reggie. We're going to bring Reggie into the universe. He shouldn't be the big
0: bad at the end of this. (laughs) Reggie is Thanos. Yeah. He's got the jawline for it. (laughs) You can, like, have, like, a little black text on the credits, like, (laughs) prepare your bodies. His body is Like, he's coming. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I'm worried about, like, I know I pitched this, but... What show is it where it turns out the whole universe was like in that snow globe that an autistic boy is looking at? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes,
1: that's like a, it's like a sitcom, right?
0: Yeah, it's like a show. Uh, and that's like famously supposed to be like a bad ending because like it kind of, it delegitimizes everything.
1: Saint Elsewhere, it's a medical drama. That
0: sounds right. So that's what crazy. I'm saying is like maybe if that's the route we go where it's like on this earth universe, like the stake should still be real. Like, like,
1: well, I think, I think that's what, I mean, that's what the multiverse kind of does where it's like, I think the way that these universes interact with each other can be trivial like that where like, it's all a game to one universe, but it's still a real universe with real stakes. I mean, it's not like the a snow globe where it's like, it's like this, this shit is actually happening to real people like to them on a timeline it's not just like all make-believe you know right so i think there there definitely would still be stakes we would have that by maybe like you know crossing over different universes into like the real world or characters from the real world into other universes and they'd see that you know this isn't just like there are stakes you know yeah it's like tron it's like it is i mean It's like Tron, where everything is happening inside the computer, but shit gets real when stuff from the computer is threatening to come out into the real world. Like, just because it's all happening in a computer doesn't mean there aren't, like, stakes, you know? And if you die in the computer, you die in real life.
0: Right. Okay. I can get on board with that. If that's the pitch we want to go with. I don't know if there's, like, another... We don't have to, like, get into Master Hand now.
1: Yeah, I don't think we have to get into that now, but I think, I mean, we'll... We don't, we're only a couple episodes away from Super Smash Brothers. We'll definitely have to get into it then, I think. So it's good that we're thinking about it now, that we've laid the groundwork.
2: The Kingdom Hearts connection does leave the door open for Tron to come in at any point.
1: Yes, that's true. Tron is in Kingdom Hearts too <laughs> the whole Oh, world. yes.
2: Yeah.
0: We're going to get Tron. We're going to get Chicken Little. We can get Zach Braff in this universe, finally.
1: Man, there's going to be so much zany, stupid shit that happens when we do Kingdom (laughs) Hearts. It's going to be awesome. Maybe we should talk
0: about those Metroids a little.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the Metroids a little bit. So, I mean, this happens after, I mean, this is probably all happening after a couple Metroid movies, I'd imagine. Right. It's later on. That's not, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that Samus has ever had to interact with Metroid Prime yet. Like, Mat- Metroid Prime, the, that story might not happen until after this, you know? She's just fought regular Metroids. Maybe Genova slash Metroid Prime, that's going to be, you know, like a much bigger deal. Like, that's her big bad. Like, that's the end of her storyline. Like, that's all where all of her story paths lead, and we haven't gotten there yet. So she could, I mean, she's definitely going to have to interact with, like, Cloud and Final Fantasy VII characters at some point if that's the case. If she's go if, like, if her story path leads to Jenova.
0: We can keep, like, these elements that, like, happen in the games no matter what and just place them in other movies. It makes me think, like, Aerith wasn't killed in this one, but we could very well still have that devastating moment, like...
1: Yeah, we can kill in her a world. later
0: movie where Bowser fucking comes from the sky and crushes her. Uh, no, and then...
1: in Kingdom Hearts world, she's not. She's gonna get killed by like
0: fucking uh, Goofy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he comes down with the giant katana like oh. <laughs> she's gonna get killed by
1: Captain Hook. Captain Hook is gonna impale her. That'd be really dark. It's gonna oh, be man. something like that.
2: Well, Woody, I think, is the best new character for Kingdom Hearts Three. He spawned the most memes
0: yes we have to- i forgot we have toy story now oh yeah we have frozen we have wreck Ra- wreck ralph could kill wreck ralph
1: kills Aerith, and that's why he has to redeem himself as not a villain he's like you kill
0: everyone's like you killed eric <laughs> <laughs> it's not who i am anymore i don't want to be a villain <laughs> my god that'd be a much more intense uh like group therapy session <laughs> I mean, just a statement, just like, it's fitting that the Final Fantasy episode is the one that really busts this open uh, and makes this very complicated, this entire yeah. universe. I think
1: it's only right that such a lore heavy game is, is is the game and episode where we're like, all right, time to bust open the lore of this actually, this universe.
2: Yeah, I think it's almost, it's crazy, but almost a little impressive too, that we did a whole Final Fantasy pitch without ever saying the word crystal once. Like that's not the magic device in this universe <laughs> at all. And that's probably true across every Final Fantasy game that's ever been made. Yeah. And no
0: chocobos. Uh, I don't think you mentioned Sid once. He uh,
2: is pretty much all the staples. The only he's in the document, I think the pitch document, just with missing next to him. Like we're missing Tifa, we're missing Yuffie, Sid, and Vincent Valentine. And like a few we could just throw him in at the group shot at the very end. For a little more fan service. That's so funny. I yeah, like- it just it doesn't really make
0: any sense why they're there unless like Cloud has his entire journey off screen while they're doing like all this stuff in Nintendo world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like Kate Sith should be a character we cut
1: alongside Red Thirteen. It is that how you that say it or is it like Red catchy? Thirteen post-trailer
2: or post-credits end scene.
1: We can do a whole movie where Kate Sith and Red Thirteen are just up to they're just doing shit around just cat and dog okay, yeah. shit. Yeah, they could just yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> I would do like a Turner and Hooch with uh <laughs> with Josh Peck. Josh Peck is Red 13. Well, thanks for having me on when you guys do Kingdom Hearts. Uh I'll I would like to come back just for analysis, like post-pitch analysis even. I want to be involved like in like like a post-game of the discussion world. of yeah. the Kingdom Hearts episode. Yeah. So, yeah. So. And I also I want to dare anyone who listened to this episode to find a single plot hole in anything that we pitched. Uh, and directed. gauntlet's been thrown down.
1: Yeah, let us will know will take up the challenge. <laughs> we issued a challenge a while ago that if anyone Venmos Pete or me, a total of sixty dollars. Like you don't even have to Venmo us sixty dollars. You can Venmo like thirty dollars and hope that someone else. But like we need to be Venmoed a total of sixty dollars, and we're gonna do a special episode where we do a dramatic reading of my Legend of Zelda script. No one's done it yet. I guess no one wants to hear it. I guess sixty
0: people, one dollar each. Yeah,
1: if you find sixty people to give one dollar each, we'll still do it. It's just my, just my Venmo handle it. is at Simon Ong Dash One, and I don't know what yours is, Pete, but just Venmo me the oh. shit. Yeah, the just world. Venmo Simon. Yeah, Venmo. If you Venmo, if you can Venmo me sixty dollars. If I get sixty dollars, we're gonna talk about Legend of. Zelda. We're gonna do Legend of Zelda, the Simon Ong film.
2: How long is that script?
1: 120 pages.
2: Are you gonna play all the characters?
1: I think we gotta. We'll have to do. We'll. I think we'll like. We'll really go in all in. We'll like cast all the characters and then we'll. Do, I happily
2: volunteer. We'll do a full dramatic reading.
0: Absolutely. We'll.
1: Bring I want to play a celebrity
0: characters. to play Bagu. I want us <laughs> to find at least a D lister to play Bagu.
1: All right, Matthew, well, thank you for joining us. We so appreciate your work. We're, we're glad that we really got into the nitty-gritty lore of this and gave it the time and attention that it deserves. Um, I'm very excited for where this universe is going to go. This multiverse is going to go with Kingdom Hearts and whatnot and, and going into Smash Brothers. So thank you so much. It was a
2: pleasure. Thank you pleasure for having me. Very nice to meet you as well, Pete. I expect 10 to 15% of whatever... Uh, (laughs) royalties that generates in perpetuity hey
0: thank you so much for listening as always none of this would be possible without some awesome remixes by some very talented very underappreciated musicians here are the credits so you can listen to them without us talking over it Amy Turk did the continue slash prelude harp cover the consoles did the Cinco de Chocobo lo-fi
1: cover The Costa del Sol lo-fi version comes from Colossia Music.
0: Vetrom did the Cosmo Canyon remix cover. The Danish National Symphony Orchestra did One-Winged Angel. Pontus Holtgren Music did the Final Fantasy VII main theme reorchestrated. The Bombing Mission Recreated comes from Alex McCoola Music. Falcone did the Genova Intense Symphonic Metal cover. The Forested Temple Orchestra and Classical
1: Guitar cover comes from Alan Naslund music. The Anxious Heart remake comes
0: from Osai Royce music. Alex Mukala music did the Mako Reactor recreated. Enrico Dayana did the Shinra Corporation remake. The Let the Battles Begin cover comes from Alex Mukala music. Pontus Holtgren music did the Ahead on Our Way orchestral. LoFi Leah did the Super Smash Bros. Melee remix. Garrett Williamson Music did The Resting Place. My GameCube Broke comes from Uzu. Marcus Hedges Trend Orchestra did the Forest Maze Super Mario RPG orchestral cover.
1: Osiroy's Music did the You Can Hear the Cry of the Planet orchestral.
0: TLB Orchestration did the Super Mario World Castle theme epic orchestral cover. Chasing the Black Caped Man comes from Pontus Holtgren. Enrico
1: Deanna did Those Chosen by the Planet remake. Jump Up Superstar emotional piano cover comes from Melandru.
0: Retrospector did the Super Mario 64 Bowser's theme remix.
1: Artificial Fear did the Fight On
0: metalized cover. Kumu did the Metroid Prime main menu remix.
1: Taylor Davis and Lara DeWitt did the Aerith's theme violin and piano duet cover marie did simple and clean
0: the victory fanfare lo-fi comes from rifty beats pontus haldgren music did the high wind takes to the skies orchestral enrico diana did the nightmare begins vincent's theme remake
1: and sid's theme remake
0: the final fantasy 7 main theme lo-fi hip-hop remix comes from rifty beats and as always, find us on Twitter at Mise
1: Smash Pod and at our personal Twitters at Simon Lewis Ong and at P Simmons Hayes and Venmo me $60 at Simon dash one and we'll do the Legend of Zelda screenplay that I wrote.
0: Come on, $60. Is that too much to ask? And Venmo me $1
1: <laughs>
0: and I'll, I'll give you nothing.
1: Catch us here next episode for another installment in the Super Smash Bros. Cinematic Universe. See you later. Bye.